you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Often in the annuals of film history, there are times when stories of a movie's production or the history of its inception are more interesting than the movie itself. My most common example of this is the 2003 slasher crossover Freddy vs Jason, which brought together the horror icons of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. It was a movie that had been in play since the late 1980s, but there were a lot of legal problems and New Line Cinema just could not get the script right. So, it's interesting that the trials and tribulations of getting the movie to the silver screen are actually much more interesting than the finished product, which was okay at best. With the new movie coming out in a couple of weeks, the rushed production and subsequent Americanization gone awry of Godzilla Raids Again is another example of where what unfolded before the credits roll is a more interesting read than the pretty disappointing sequel to a B-movie masterpiece. In many respects, the production behind tonight's episode, The Mighty Casey, follows a similar path. The production was rife with interesting, if very tragic, troubles, but the episode itself strikes out. What you're looking at is a ghost, once alive but now deceased. Once upon a time, it was a baseball stadium that housed a major league ball club known as the Hoboken Zephyrs. Now it houses nothing but memories, and a wind that stirs in the high grass of what was once an outfield. A wind that sometimes bears a faint ghostly resemblance to the roar of a crowd that once sat here. We're back in time now, when the Hoboken Zephyrs was still a part of the National League. And this mausoleum of memories was an honest to Pete stadium. But since this is strictly a story of make-believe, it has to start this way. Once upon a time in Hoboken, New Jersey, it was tryout day. And though he's not yet on the field, you're about to meet a most unusual fella. A left-handed pitcher named Casey. First broadcast on the 17th of June, 1960. Written by Rod Serling, with directing roles accredited to both Alvin Ganser and Robert Parrish. Now both Ganser and Parrish are names we've seen before in The Twilight Zone. Parrish directed the episode One for the Angels and Tom's Last Journey to the Fifth Dimension, A Stop at Willoughby. And Alvin Ganser directed What You Need, The Hitchhiker and Nightmare as a Child. However, this would be the last episode for both men, and while it was the second to last episode of the first season, it was filmed much earlier in the production run. Now, throughout my research on the production dates for The Mighty Casey, I've not been able to find anything really solid or concrete. Mark Zickrey in The Twilight Zone Companion places it directly after the 16mm shrine, and Martin Grimes Jr. only has one production date in his notes. But nevertheless, the episode was intended to be much earlier in the season. The episode was originally filmed with Paul Douglas in the role of the manager of the Hoboken Zephyr's Mouth McGarry. Douglas had already played a baseball coach in the 1951 comedy Angels in the Outfield, a movie that was remade in 1994 with Danny Glover and Christopher Lloyd. His turn in Angels in the Outfield not only inspired Rod Serling to write the character of Mouth McGarry for him, but it was also a tribute to his early career in sports as a radio announcer for CBS in Philadelphia. He also went back to his roots, so to speak, a couple of years earlier in the baseball comedy It Happens Every Spring, a movie that featured Ted DeCorsia, who we'll be seeing much later on in The Twilight Zone. 
He was known for being a very burly man and wasn't thought to have the typical looks of a 1950s leading man. He once said of himself, the studio cameraman enjoys working with me. You know why? It's because he doesn't have to worry about my bad angle. They're all bad. He doesn't have to fuss with the lights or anything because nothing he can do can make me look better. I'm a cinch for makeup men too. They figure nothing could be done, so that's what they do. Rod Serling once said of him, I loved Paul Douglas. There was something gutsy and ballsy about this guy, and you could always count on him. However, there was a problem with Paul Douglas that hung over his career. Paul Douglas liked to drink. Rod Serling remembers, he had a reputation for being heavy on the bottle, but it had been somewhat dispelled over the last two or three years, and his agent guaranteed us that he would not drink or was not drinking during that time. Anyway, we look at the first day's rushes, and Paul Douglas looks even in black and white, mottled, high colour, semi-diffuse, a breath so short that he couldn't even continue one short stuccato sentence without gasping for breath. So right away I make the assumption that he's drunk, he's drinking, and I blow my top, and I called his agent, and I said, this is very unethical of you, you assured me he wasn't drinking. His agent said, to the best of my knowledge, he's not drinking. And as far as we can tell, the agent was right. It wasn't the drink that was hampering Douglas's performance, but his poor health. On Saturday the 11th of June, shortly after the production of The Mighty Casey finished, Paul Douglas died of a massive heart attack in his home at the age of 52. Rod Selling continues, Well, we finished the show and it was a disaster. We finished shooting, I think on a Thursday, and Saturday morning, Douglas was dead. And we were watching him literally die in front of us. It's a horrible tragedy and a very sad end to what had been a very successful career. He had an impressive stint on Broadway after leaving the radio world and he had a string of movie roles where he was always near the top of the billing. Just before he died he had a brief meeting with Billy Wilder about playing Jack Lemmon's philandering boss in the 1960 movie The Apartment, which would go on to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Wilder said, I saw him and his wife, Jan Sterling, at a restaurant, and I realised he was perfect, and I asked him right there in the parking lot. About two days before we were to start, he had a heart attack and died. After doing a rough cut of the episode, Rod Serling took the Mighty Casey to CBS to show it to them, telling them, Well gentlemen, this is one substantial piece of celluloid that you're gonna have to eat, because there is nothing funny about this show. Serling feared quite correctly, that because of the show's light-hearted tone, it would be inappropriate to air following Douglas's death. However, CBS refused to pay for a new episode to be filmed. So, out of his own pocket, Serling put up the $27,000 needed to recast, reshoot, and recut the episode. But even with the reshoot, Serling did script a promo for the episode which reads, Next week we take you into a state of wonderful confusion. The late Mr. Paul Douglas stars in a play we call The Mighty Casey. Bring your imagination as we recount to you the trials and tribulations of a major league ball club called the Hoboken Zephyrs, a put-upon manager, and a most fabulous baseball pitcher you'll ever watch in action. Next week on The Twilight Zone, The Mighty Casey. Due to scheduling conflicts, Robert Parrish came in to reshoot the necessary scenes as the cast came back to Hollywood Baseball Park to redo the same actions they'd done eight months previously only this time with Jack Warden as Matt McGarry. You're general manager of this club, why don't you get me some ball players? You'd know what to do with them? 20 games out of fourth place, and the only big average we got 
is a manager with the widest mouth in either league. Maybe you better get reminded. When the Hoboken Zephyrs win one game, we gotta call it a streak. Oh, buddy boy, when contract time comes around, you don't have to. Depending on which text you read, the teleplay that Rod Serling wrote was either based upon or inspired by the poem Casey at the Bat by Ernest Thayer under the pen name Finn for the San Francisco Examiner on June 3rd, 1888. Considering how different the episode is to the poem, I think saying that the mighty Casey is based on Casey at the Bat is a stretch. If you've not heard the poem yet, we posted a version of it recorded by Kate Hansel with yours truly at the Twilight Zone Network. It's a good and fun poem, and it's become somewhat of an icon in American literature. In the year of its release, it was performed by the famed vaudevillian actor and comedian DeWolf Hopper, and it would become a huge part of his routine. By his count, he recited the poem over 10,000 times before his death, but some publications put it at nearly four times that number. It has been spoofed in The Simpsons, The Cleveland Show, and Tiny Toon Adventures, and it even had a feature-length film adaptation made of it in 1927, starring Wallace Beery. In the 1980s, the magician duo Penn and Teller used the poem as part of their act, and it was also adapted in Shelley Duvall's Tall Tales and Ledgers, in which the titular Casey was played by Elliot Gould. In 1996, it was recorded by James L. Jones, with Stephen Renike and the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra. But Flynn let Driver single to the wonderment of all, and Blake the much despised tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy Savage second and Flynn a-hugging third. Then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell, it knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. But Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. But outside of Hopper, perhaps the most famous interpretation was the 1946 Disney cartoon short of the same name as a segment in Make Mine Music, with the poem recited by Jerry Colonna. And now the leather-covered spear came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it, in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That is my style, said Casey. So with all of these famous and nearly legendary renditions, how does Rod Serling's interpretation hold up? How's Fletcher doing? Are you kidding? He pitched one inning last week and only allowed six runs. That makes him our most valuable player of the month. Dugout. Yeah. Who? Wanna look at a pitcher? At this point, I'll even look at you. Send him over. We open on Mouth McGarry, the manager of the Hoboken Zephyrs, who currently hold the worst record in the league. He looks out on what could be his next pitcher, but just can't find the right man for the job. That is until he gets a call about a left-handed pitcher who was shown up for the trials, accompanied by a man named Dr. Stillman. A left-handed pitcher by the name of Casey, who has a very strong handshake. Uh, Casey, uh, this is Mr. McGarry, the manager of the Zephyrs. No, no, no. Your right hand, Casey. Your right hand. Oh! 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 oh. <laughs> 
I'm I'm not going to dwell on the comedy, for lack of a better term, with this episode. It's been documented well enough, and we've looked at how the Twilight Zone wasn't very good at light-hearted fun in the episodes The Chaser and Mr. Beavis. What I will say, however, is, and we'll look into this a bit more later on, is that The Mighty Casey feels like it's an episode written for a younger audience. With that said, the comedy sound effects are only going to get worse. As Casey heads off to the pitcher's mound, we find out why his handshake was so strong. It was father? His father? Casey's? Oh, no, no. He has no father. Well, I am what you might call his, uh, well, kind of uh, creator. How old is he? How old is he? Well, now, that's a little difficult to say. Well, guess. Now, what I mean is, it's uh, hard to be chronological when discussing Casey's age, because uh, he's only been in existence three weeks. Now, what I mean is that uh, he has the physique and the mind of a boy of 22. But in terms of how long he's been here, well, now, uh, the answer to that would be uh, three weeks. You want to go over that again? Oh, it's not too difficult, really. You see, I made Casey. I built him. He's a robot. Now, these are the uh, blueprints I worked on. Why do you have to pick on me all the time? Huh? Casey was played by an actor named Robert Sorrells, who was a busy actor, like many were at the time, and starred in many of the shows we've mentioned on this podcast, like Gunsmoke and Rawhide. He also featured the movie Fletch, but retired from acting in 1990. He was apparently quite a recluse, but was a keen guitar player, and often gave regular concerts and lessons for his neighbours. But, ironically like Paul Douglas, he suffered from a drinking problem later on in life which led to tragedy in 2004, when he shot two people in a bar in Simi Valley, California, killing one and seriously injuring the other. A 2005 news story from the Simi Valley Acorn reads, Robert Sorrells, 75, was recently sentenced to 32 years to life in the California Department of Corrections for the July 24, 2004 murder of Arthur DeLong and the attempted murder of Edward Sanchez. Sorrells had pleaded guilty to one account of premeditated murder and one count of premeditated attempted murder. The crimes occurred when Sorrells walked into the Regency Lounge in the 1600 block of Los Angeles Avenue in Simi Valley and shot DeLong in the back at point-blank range. He then shot Sanchez, who was sitting on a barstool in the back. Sorrells also fired a second shot at each of the men as they lay on the floor. About an hour before the shooting, Sorrells, a retired actor, had been requested to leave the bar because of his belligerence to another patron. DeLong escorted Sorrells from the bar to avoid a confrontation between Sorrells and the patron. DeLong did not know either man. DeLong had to physically restrain Sorrells from attacking the other patron as they left. Sorrells then went to his home and retrieved his gun. He returned to the bar and shot DeLong and Sanchez. Sanchez had arrived at the bar about 10 minutes earlier and had no prior contact with Sorrells before the shooting. Sorrells initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but withdrew that plea on May 16 before entering his guilty plea. It's it's just another tragic element to what is supposed to be a light-hearted episode of The Twilight Zone. So, I, I don't really want to bring the tone down any further or dwell on this, so we'll raise a glass to the victims and their families and carry on with the rest of the episode. So as Casey goes out to show what he can do, we hear about his different types of pitches. 
due to his pictures being fantastical, they aren't shown to let us use our imagination, but we are given an idea of what they might be like through the medium of sound effects. There's his fastball, his curve, and lastly, that's a snowball. I don't know what to say about this to be honest and I know that's no good in terms of analysis but it's hard to know what to say. The sound effects are silly but if this episode is geared towards a younger audience then you have to accept how silly they are. So McGarry has seen enough and he signs Casey onto his team, asking Dr Stillman to keep the news that he's actually a robot secret. With Casey now on the team we get a montage of newspaper clippings showing their victories but they come crashing to an end, quite literally, as Casey gets knocked out by a ball. But it's okay kids, Casey is alright. While he's in the hospital being nursed back to health, the doctor discovers that Casey doesn't have a pulse, and without a pulse, he can't be alive. It's at this point that McGarry and Stillman have to come clean and admit that Casey is a robot, news that doesn't go over well with the Baseball Commission. Article 6, Section 2, The Baseball Code. I quote, a team shall consist of nine men, end of quote. Men, understand? Not robots. He's suspended. That's my final decision. Commissioner, to all intents and purposes, he is human. Casey, talk to him. Tell him about yourself. What should I say? Now, you see, he talks better than me. And he's a lot smarter than most of those mutton heads I got in the club. He is not human. How human do you want him? He's got arms and legs and a face and he talks. And no heart. He doesn't even own a heart. How could he be human without a heart? Beasley hasn't got a heart either. He owns 40% of the club. That's it, gentlemen. He doesn't have a heart. That means he isn't human. That's a clear violation of the baseball code. Therefore, he doesn't play. You could make the argument that The Mighty Casey would be a good companion piece for another season one episode, The Lonely. Both feature the central conceit of can a robot considered to be alive or even human. Tonally, they're very different, of course, but the idea is there. In The Lonely, Cory is at first repellent to the idea of Alicia, but over the course of the episode, warms to her and then fights her corner to argue that she does have a value of life. In The Mighty Casey, the argument is more about what makes a human alive. The central idea is that because Casey doesn't have a heart, he isn't considered a living being. I really do like this idea, and I think it's fair to say that The Lonely perhaps does it better, but it's interesting that both episodes feature Jack Warden, and even contain similar lines of dialogue. Commissioner, to all intents and purposes, he is human! You are now the proud possessor of a robot built in the form of a woman. To all intent and purpose, this creature is a woman. So, Dr. Stillman goes away to give Casey a heart. And before he knows it, Mouth McGarry has his star pitcher back on the team. And this time, he has quite literally a ticker. Casey! Casey! Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> all right, all right, quiet down, quiet down. Well, tell him, Casey. Listen, Mr. McGarry. <laughs> you got a heart. Look at his smile. That's the one thing I couldn't get him to do. Yeah, it's wonderful. Just wonderful. 
I feel like togetherness. But unfortunately for Mouth McGarry, much like the Casey of Casey at the Bat, the mighty Casey doesn't perform and strikes out. All right, I'll listen. I'm a reasonable man, I'll listen to anything. As you well know, Doctor. But maybe you can tell me how, how one minute he can look like three Bob fellers and the next like a tanker with nothing. Or maybe you can explain, Casey, how you can pitch nine balls and allow four singles, two doubles, two triples, and a home run. Shall I tell him, Casey? Well, somebody tell me. Casey's got a heart. All right, so Casey's got a heart. The thing is, Mr. McGarry, I, I just couldn't strike those poor fellows out. I didn't have it in me to do that, to hurt their feelings. I felt compassion. That's it, he's got compassion. See how he smiles? Give a man a heart, Mr. McGarry, particularly someone like Casey, who hasn't been around long enough to understand uh, competitiveness or drive or ego. <laughs> That's what happens. I'm sorry, Mr. McGarry. I just can't hurt fellows' careers. Dr. Stillman thinks I should go into social work. That's right. I want to help people. But as he leaves, Dr. Stillman gives McGarry one final gift. Perhaps you'd like to keep Casey's blueprints. A little memento might cheer you up. Bye. a couple of times in this podcast the idea of the mighty casey being an episode made for a younger audience i know that the twilight zone has entertained children across various generations so it's not out of line to think that serling dropped in these comedy episodes to entertain the younger fans of the fifth dimension so with that in mind if the mighty casey was written for children can you really be critically harsh on it as you might have guessed from the opening of this podcast one of my other passions outside of the Twilight Zone is Japanese monster movies, particularly Godzilla. Now, during the 1960s, Godzilla took a drastic change of pace from his dark and broody beginnings as an allegory for the horrors of nuclear war to being a hero to children. This was down to the rise of shows like Ultraman and Godzilla's rival series Gamera. In an effort to attract a younger audience, Godzilla movies became much more light-hearted and fun. The most notable of these is the cheaply made All the Monsters Attack, released in the US as Godzilla's Revenge. This wasn't a movie that was made with a younger audience in mind, this was specifically made for children. Due to Toho's struggling financial problems, All the Monsters Attack was essentially a clip show of some of Godzilla's famous fights while a young boy and Minya, the son of Godzilla, watch on and the whole movie is centred around standing up to bullies who push you around. Now, if you were to look at All Monsters Attack with an adult perspective compared to the rest of the series, not only is the movie not very good, it's actually kind of boring and incredibly annoying. But, if you were to watch it as a child who has no other frame of reference, it's probably quite a lot of fun. Silly fun, but fun nonetheless. So, let's apply this logic to The Mighty Casey. I do firmly believe that The Mighty Casey is an episode written for children. 
Rod Serling even refers to it as a fairy tale in his intro, using the immortal phrase, once upon a time. I'm not a father, so I can't give an exact frame of reference, but I could see myself reading this kind of story to my youngsters. A tale of a losing team who get a robot to play for them, who then learns the art of compassion. There's a decent moral in there, and the idea alone should entertain a young child. As I said, I'm not a parent, so I could be way out to lunch on this one, but I think if you were to look at The Mighty Casey as a kid's fairy tale, it's really not so bad. However, as an episode of The Twilight Zone, you can't really call it mighty. Once upon a time, there was a Major League Baseball team called the Hoboken Zephyrs, who during the last year of their existence wound up in last place and shortly thereafter wound up in oblivion. There's a rumor, unsubstantiated of course, that a manager named McGarry took them to the West Coast and wound up with several pennants and a couple of world's championships. This team had a pitching staff that made history. Of course, none of them smiled very much, but it happens to be a fact that they pitched like nothing human. And if you're interested as to where these gentlemen came from, you might check under B for Baseball in the Twilight Zone. Apologies for last week's lateness in the episode. I hope you enjoyed the podcast extra I posted last week, but I was hoping to get this episode recorded and out while I was covering Sundance. Sadly, the festival took up a lot of my time, as did writing the reviews, so I unfortunately missed it. Uh, Again, apologies for that. Incidentally, if you want to read any of those reviews, they're up at flickeringmyth.com. As I said last week, I'm hoping that I won't have to take too many weeks off like this, but there will be times where I won't be able to commit to the Twilight Zone network. If I'm on holiday or covering the London Film Festival or Fright Fest, for example, In the next couple of weeks, my job is sending me out to Las Vegas, and there might be a chance I won't get an episode up that week either. But I will endeavour to keep these regular, even if I have to get some of these podcast extras together to bridge the gap. Speaking of the extra, I just wanted to say thank you to the iTunes commenter in the States called Famous Writers School, who left a nice message about an American classic being read by someone from the UK. They said they can now imagine a classic non-American poem being read by someone like Al Pacino, which did make me laugh. They also noticed that they hoped we'd do more of these uh, for episodes like Icing the Body Electric, so we'll see about those in the future. And before we jump into the mailbag, I just wanted to thank Dark Inc. 1 for drawing up the new podcast artwork for the show. I didn't want to jump in with both feet first into the Twilight Zone podcast and act like Tom's work didn't matter anymore, but I do have to say it's quite nice to see my name under the title of the podcast, so thank you very much for sending those across, they're absolutely brilliant. So with that said, let's jump into your feedback with Submitted for your approval. This first from Nick, who sent an email about last week's episode, The After Hours, which reads, The After Hours is my favourite Twilight Zone episode, with all due respect to Mirror Image, 22, and a stop at Willoughby. I think the concept of a store dummy coming to life to be very interesting, and any horror in department stores to be very entertaining. 
Usually my favourite episodes are the ones that can happen in real life, like Mirror Image, or Project What Society Is Like. The episode number 12 looks just like you, for example. I thought the performances by Marsha and the other main character were done very good, and I have to admit I got emotional at the end. Also wanted to say that, unlike Shadowplay, the 80s remake of this episode was absolutely horrid. <laughs> Thanks for that, Nika. I, I, I completely agree. I was talking to Tom the other day about the 80s remake and whether or not I'd look at the show once I'm done with the original series, but we're way off from that yet, so we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And lastly, we have this comment from Stephen, who had this to say about a passage for Trumpet. He writes, This is a simple and sentimental episode with a questionable moral. If you kill yourself, you'll get a second chance and your guardian angel will sweeten up the deal by giving you everything you ever wanted. Actually, there are two morals, and the second one is this. Whatever demons you had in your first life, e.g. alcoholism, are easily fixed by just saying no. Nancy Reagan would be proud of such a moral. Within the netherworld that Joey finds himself in, we discover the odd twist to this story. Joey is alive walking among ghosts who we are told need a little more time to get comfortable with being dead. I'm not sure how comforting it is to inhabit a world in which everyone is a stranger. Whomever is in charge of the afterlife needs a basic course in psychology. Watch Joey with his trumpet. He has to kiss her every time they're together. Was this in the script, or was it Klugman's personal touch? Next week's episode, Mr. Beavis, is also about second chances and guardian angels, and it's also painfully simple and sentimental. Neither of these episodes hold a candle to the preceding episode, The Chaser. Luke seems to think quite highly of this episode. Klugman does a good job, certainly. I have every reason to like this episode, because in my younger days I worked hard to be a professional trumpet player. For a while I took lessons from a guy who took lessons from Doc Severseen. I would have given up 10, maybe even 20 years of my life to play like any of the guys in this episode. But maybe what I needed to do was throw myself in front of a truck. No, I'm sorry. I just can't like this episode. So, we disagree again, Stephen, but uh, I do agree with you about the morals of the episode. As I said in my analysis, it's hard to get behind Joey as everything that has gone wrong for him is of his own doing, but Klugman somehow turns him into a character you can root for. Was he deserving of a second chance? I'm not sure. However, if you do look at the episode as if Joey was not in the netherworld and was just knocked out and imagining it all, which there are signs for, then it is a bit easier to stomach. But thank you both for your comments there, they're really appreciated. And if you want to get in touch, like Nick and Steven, please email me at luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com or head over to the website thetwilightzonenetwork.com You can find us on facebook.com thetwilightzonenetwork or on twitter at twilightzonenet. You can also find me personally on twitter at lukewrightstuff and you can read my work over at flickeringmyth.com Next week, we reach the end of the first season with the Richard Matheson penned episode, A World of His Own. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.